Today's scripture comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is uh, really wonderful to be with you guys and to have an opportunity over the next few weeks to just open up God's Word together. And what we're going to be doing during that time is kind of uh, walking through four steps of Hebrews' focus on Christ and trying to understand uh, what Hebrews is doing in, in unpacking the identity of Jesus. And we'll talk a, a bit about that as we go along. A few years ago, I read Bernard Cornwell's historical account of the Battle of Waterloo. And that decisive battle took place in Belgium in 1815. It was fought shortly after Napoleon escaped from his exile on the island of Elba and returned briefly to military might. You probably know that story, how he then began marching across Europe once again. Uh, the, the losses on both sides at Waterloo were devastating. And, and there was a critical moment in the battle in, at which the, the French threw thousands of soldiers at this ridge where uh, Duke Wellington and his main part of his leadership were kind of ensconced on this, uh, this ridge with lots of soldiers defending them. And it was a brutal moment in the battle. You can imagine kind of being on that ridge at the time, smoke filling the air. Uh, many of the soldiers couldn't see, but just a few paces in front of them. Their vision was really restricted. And those on uh, the British side and their allies, they saw their comrades falling all around them. And some of them, for a moment, thought were losing. They kind of lost perspective in that moment. But the majority of Wellington's forces were able to see him. He had made himself vulnerable kind of on the peak of the ridge in a place where the soldiers could see him, and he was directing the battle from that point. 
and it gave his army perspective and an orientation that was really, really important at that moment in the battle. The future of Europe quite literally hung in the balance. But as they were directed by Wellington from his vantage point, they conquered the unconquerable Napoleon. Now, I don't need to tell you that we too can lose perspective. Uh, We can feel like, in a sense, we're in a smoke-filled battle in the world with all the stuff that's going on around us. We have pandemic and political upheaval in the world with battles. Um, And all of us probably have personal, individual things going on in our lives that, that become disorienting. And we can have a sense of, you know, where is God in all this? And we, we can't really see Christ. We might feel like even people that we greatly respect in very significant positions are falling at our side. It can be quite overwhelming. And at times, we might even feel like the gospel and the church are losing in this moment we find ourselves in history. Now, the thing is, we're not the first generation to struggle with disillusionment, are we? And Hebrews was actually written to a group of people who were in a moment of political upheaval where the church was suddenly greatly embattled in a way that caused disillusionment for some in a way that they they had one foot out the door. They were kind of thinking this is just too hard in the moment. Hebrews was probably written around A.D. 63, maybe the early part of A.D. 64. I think that it was probably sent to the, excuse me, the church in Rome. Uh, Nero became emperor in the mid-50s. He was a teenager at the time, about 17 years of age. And actually, the first few years of his reign were pretty good. He was, he was a decent um, emperor who was ruling under the leadership of others, really, and then he killed his mom in A.D. 59, and everything started going downhill from there. So don't, you know, rule, don't kill your mom. Uh, kind of bad things happen in life. Uh, so he started driving his race chariot around the streets, reading poetry in the pubs. It was not a good, good thing. All right. But then in A.D. 64, he actually started a very intense persecution of Christians, And we think that Hebrews may have been written to the church right when the persecution was on the rise. So uh, people in the church had not lost their lives yet, but it was coming. And they were in this moment of tremendous political upheaval in which the church had actually become a target by people around them in the culture. Very powerful people were against them. And this pastor who writes this book we call Hebrews, which we think was was maybe our first sermon that we have, or or a very uh, good example of an ancient sermon. This pastor himself was incarcerated and was being held by authorities for some reason. And the main reason that Hebrews is being written is to address those people who are struggling with hanging in there in the faith. So it's really really relevant for us that we have this strong word of encouragement on how when we're facing this upheaval and emotional confusion 
How do we hang in there? And the answer to that from Hebrews' perspective is we need to think very, very clearly about the identity of Jesus and about the nature of the gospel. And so we could actually say this is a summary of the purpose of Hebrews, that your perseverance in the Christian life will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And that's what we're going to kind of unpack over the next four weeks together. Uh, Today, the topic is Jesus is greater than you imagined. And we're especially going to focus on the first four verses of this passage and kind of dip into those other verses uh, in the balance of the chapter. But our four points this morning are the Father's, Jesus is the Father's clear message. He is the paramount power of the universe. He is the Father's signal and snapshot. And He is the gracious Lord of all. So let's uh, start walking through this together. So first of all, the Father's clear message, which we find in the first two verses of the passage. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, we as human beings thrive on good communication, don't we? It, it really helps when people around us are communicating clearly and we're communicating with them and we're, we're feeling heard and understood. In a recent book, Levi Lusko writes that it takes the cooperation of 72 different muscles to produce speech, which is really interesting. On average, we speak about 16,000 words every day, and some of us probably a few more than that. Uh, That adds up to a whopping 860 million words in our lifetime. So what are we doing with all of those words? Well, I want to suggest that what we're doing is we're moving the world. We're changing things in the world. Some things very small, incidental, and sometimes big, life-moving kinds of events are set in motion by words. Words are powerful. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, words so innocent and powerless as they are as standing in a dictionary, how potent for good and evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. Now, what we intuitively long for, of course, are words that are, quote, potent for good. We receive uh, love, uh, helpful words, encouraging words, beautiful words. That's really what we long for in life. Uh, My wife, Pat, unfortunately, is not here this morning. She woke up with a little bit of a sore throat and took a COVID test. It was negative, but she didn't want to kind of pass a virus on to uh, those of you who are here, so she's at home. But Pat and I um, really do have a great time together. We're, we're best friends, and we still we went out yesterday to kind of a little cafe thing we've never been to here uh, before in Vancouver and sat and just talked through what's going on in life and had this face-to-face, heart-to-heart communication that actually uh, started right from the beginning in our relationship. We had met when I was um, 
a TA for a class, a Greek class actually, and she was sitting on the front row. And she would get up and run out of the class after class, and I, I didn't have a chance to kind of meet her, which I, I wanted to do because she was beautiful, you know, beautiful Greek student right there on the front row. And uh, she would just get up and take off. And I didn't know it, but she was determined that she said, Lord, I'd really like to meet this guy, but, but I want you to initiate that and not me. And she'll tell you that story sometime. But I was walking across campus one day, and there she was working in the flower bed. She kind of worked on the grounds crew for the seminary, and uh, she was working in a flower bed, and, and I was going that way as I was walking home and stopped and talked to her for about 20 seconds, and I went, wow, she is amazing. And so I started initiating, you know, kind of reaching out to her, and we had our first date, and we finally came to kind of the define the relationship moment, Right. And we had gone out after church on a Sunday night and had pie and tea and coffee or whatever. And, and I was nervous because I, I kind of wanted to find out what she was thinking about things. And I had my hands up on the table and I started going into, I said, you know, I've really enjoyed getting with you. And, you know, I know you have all these guys interested. I, I would go to the library and she'd have like four guys helping her with her Greek, right? <laughs> I mean... The ratio of guys to girls was 10 guys to one girl at, at that seminary at that time. It's not good odds, right? So uh, I told her, I said, I, you know, I'm really enjoying the time, but I'm a bit older than a lot of these guys. My hair is starting to retreat, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, and at that moment, she reached out and she put her hand on top of my hands. And I thought, that's a good sign. <laughs> But she, you know what she did? She just became vulnerable with me, and she said, well, I've, I've been kind of feeling insecure. Why would you want to, to you know, date me? And, and that moment of just kind of openness, kind of recognition of each other's hearts was a deeper level of communication that really changed the course of my life. It's led to scones and wonderful cooking and <laughs> wonderful children, all kinds of things, right, eventually. Good words can set the course of our life. And what I want to say to us this morning is that no one, no one knows how to use words for good like God. In the beginning, God, what? Said. And God created the world by speaking the world into existence. God spoke and the foundations of everything we know came into being. We tend to think of language as a human dynamic that's just kind of developed naturally as a part of what it means to be human. But language was there before the creation of the world. It was a reality that lies behind the universe it's at the heart of all things, in a sense. And one of the great miracles of the universe is that God, the all-powerful Creator, wishes to communicate with us. And so Hebrews says, having spoken, which takes in all of what we have in the Old Testament, beginning with creation and all of the prophets and all the ways that God had communicated, Having spoken, God spoke. Now the ESV says, but 
in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. That but is not, not the best translation there, really. Because uh, for those of you who are my Greek students, the first part is a participle. It's having spoken. God laid the foundation with what was going on in all that communication in the Old Testament. Having spoken, God preeminently spoke in His Son. The communication built on, the communication through Jesus built on everything that God had said before. And it was a communication that was profoundly personal as God stepped onto planet earth in the person of His Son. Personal communication is really, really important. Uh, Pat just had a birthday. I'm not going to talk about Pat the whole time, okay? <laughs> I promise. Uh, but she just had a very significant birthday. And um, so the kids have been talking about coming in July, actually this month, about this time. And they were talking about that. But sometime in the middle of the spring, my son called me and said, what would you think about us coming and surprising mom for her birthday, which was May 15th? I said, that'd be a great idea. So about, for about two and a half or three months, we schemed. And the kids and I worked everything out, and I, I played the part. I kept saying, now, when they're here in July, what do you think we ought to do with the kids? And just kind of said, hey, we'll go to Van Dusen, and, you know, maybe we can go over, take a hike in the mountains, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then it came right up to the time, and the day, the morning of the Saturday right before her birthday on Sunday, Joshua, my son, called her and said, hey, Mom, just want to let you know some flowers are going to be delivered tonight. And so she said to me, she was getting nervous through the day, she said, because I just want to make sure the florists have the right thing. So, George, why don't you call, find out from Joshua who the florist is and call the florist. And so I took the phone and I said, okay, yeah, it's Sally's florist over a... Hello, yes, this is, this is George Guthrie. You have a delivery. Of course, there's nobody on the phone. I did. It was great. It was awesome. And that night, what happened was she's uh, thinking... The flowers are coming to the door, and she's getting nervous because they're not arriving. They're not arriving because the flight was delayed. <laughs> and finally, about 8.15, the doorbell rings, and she says, uh, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a video of this so the kids can see when you get your flowers. And she went to the door, and <laughs> the three kids were there. Joshua and his wife and our daughter were all there. And they personally delivered the flowers. And they personally said happy birthday and hugged her. It's a different kind of embodiment, right? And when the Father sent the Son to speak clear word to us about what God's up to in the world in relationship with us, it was personal communication. Do you see how great Jesus is? And that He is the clear Word of the Father to us. He's the Father's clear message. And I want to say to us this morning that if God has indeed spoken into the world, there is nothing, nothing in life that is more important than us hearing what He would want to say to us.
That brings us to the second point, and that is that Jesus is not only the Father's clear message, He's also the paramount power of the universe. And you see this in parts of verses 2 and 3. Whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I saw a news uh, story this past week about the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. Did you see this? Um, It said, scientists in Switzerland have resumed smashing together the tiny particles that make up the physical properties of the universe in hopes of better understanding the forces and phenomena that undergird existence. Now, this is an effort of the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Geneva. So this this is the largest uh, particle collider and accelerator in the world. Um, So a decade ago, ago, this process and this project uh, proved the existence of the Higgs boson particle, also known as the God particle. Uh, The article said this is a revelatory discovery that science say confirmed the final puzzle piece of the standard model theory, which outlines the fundamental building blocks and forces of the universe. Now, what that type of science is able to do is to answer the what, but not the how and the who. Right? If they were looking for the most fundamental force and power in the universe, I could have saved them a lot of time and money for a very small consulting fee, right? (laughs) Hebrews and the other writers of the New Testament tell us that it was actually Jesus, it it is actually Jesus who is the paramount power behind the universe. The way Colossians 1 says it is, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where their thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In other words, most basically, what keeps atoms from blowing apart is Jesus. And Hebrews lays out this truth in a beautiful way. Look at the three aspects of this in this very brief part of the passage. Through whom He made the universe. It says that Jesus is the Creator of the universe. Hebrews 1, 10-12 is a quotation of Psalm 102, and it expands on this idea. And in the beginning, Lord, this is speaking of Jesus, And by the way, this is an Old Testament Yahweh text. In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Now, that literally says something like, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. If you've ever built a house, you have some kind of foundation for your house. Uh, We built a house 24 years ago now. 
uh, back in Tennessee. And the first thing we did was we dug the foundation that was filled with concrete and rebar and, and stuff that would give solidity to the structure of the house. And it says that Jesus is the Lord who laid the foundation of the universe. Now think, think about what that means just for a minute. Robert Jastrow, a number of years ago, who was the former head of NASA's Goddard Center, used a, this analogy to describe the vastness of space. He said, let the sun be the size of an orange, and on that scale of sizes, the earth is a grain of sand circling in orbit around the sun at a distance of about 30 feet. So think of, here we have an orange grain of sand about back where Sam is at the back of the auditorium, you know, circling around on, that, on this scale of sizes. The giant planet Jupiter is 11 times larger than the, than the Earth. It's a cherry pit revolving at a distance of one city block. So kind of go down to 41st. You've got a cherry pit. That's Jupiter. Saturn's another cherry bit, two blocks from the sun. And then in Jastrow's illustration, Pluto is another uh, sand grain at a distance of 10 city blocks. You with me? On this scale of size. On that same scale, the average distance between the stars, or oranges, is 2,000 miles. The nearest neighbor, a star Alpha Centauri, is 1,300 miles away. I guess down in Southern California, maybe? Something like that? In space, uh, the space between the sun and its neighbors is just a thin distribution of hydrogen atoms forming a vacuum far greater than we could ever achieve on Earth. But the galaxy, here's the point, the galaxy on that scale is a cluster of oranges separated by an average distance of 2,000 miles, the entire cluster being 20 million miles in diameter on that scale. And what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the one who spoke and all of that came into existence in a way that it was stable. Jesus is the one who acted as the Father's agent in the creation of the world. Now, it's kind of hard for us to get our heads around that, a bit, but just imagine if I was a builder here in Vancouver, had built a, a big shopping center, and yet I never left my office. I was the owner of the company, all that, but I commissioned my son Joshua to actually be the one who was on site and overseeing all the subcontractors and everything. At the end of that whole process, if someone said, uh, you know, who built that shopping center? If someone said, well, George Guthrie did, that'd be an accurate statement, wouldn't it? But if someone else said, well, Joshua Guthrie did, his son built that project, that too would be an accurate statement because my son would have acted as my agent 
in the building process. But Jesus is the one who spoke and all of creation came into existence. Hebrews also says that He sustains all things by His powerful Word. The word there means to bear. He is the one who is bearing along all things, even right now. He is the one who is bringing the created order to His desired ends. So He's the one who created it, laid the foundation in the beginning. He is the one who is sustaining the world even now and through history, bringing things to his desired end. in Hebrews says that he is the heir of all things. He is the one who is going to wrap up all things in the end. What Hebrews is doing at this point is alluding to Psalm 2-7, or really Psalm chapter 2, which is quoted in part in verse 5 of chapter 1. The broader context of that psalm reads like this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance or your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And what that means is at the end of the age... Jesus will say of all things, mine. And notice the description that Psalm 102 gives in that quotation in verses 10 through 12, there toward the end of Hebrews 1. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So in other words, Jesus is not only the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, but also He will be the terminator of all things. And He'll be back, right? That's terrible. I shouldn't have really <laughs> I used to have an old uh, sweatshirt. The university uh, where I used to work, I had this navy blue university sweatshirt that I loved. It was my like Saturday morning lay around, you don't care who sees you in it sweatshirt. And uh, over the years, I've had it probably for about a decade, and over the years it started unraveling and getting holes in it, and my wife became embarrassed with me going out in public, even like to, to Lowe's or something like that. And I went in one day to my closet, and my sweatshirt was gone. Because Pat had gone in, and she had taken it, and she had rolled it up and packed it away. She probably burned it, you know, out in the backyard somewhere. But Hebrew says that Jesus, Jesus the Son is going to be the one who at the end of the age takes all that we know as the material universe and He is going to be the one who rolls it up like an old piece of clothing and packs it away. Because you do understand that this existence that we know is, is not permanent. But He is. And He is going to be the one who packs it away at the end 
of all things. Seeing Jesus' role in relation to the universe, do you see how great Jesus is? He is the Father's clear message. He's the paramount power of the universe. But thirdly, He is the Father's signal and snapshot. And this is kind of a brief point here. But verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory and God of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That first description is kind of playing off of an idea that you have in, in the Scriptures broadly. But the glory of God, the glory of God is something that has about 10 different implications in Scripture. Uh, depending on where you are, glory can mean and refer to different things. Uh, but one of the key things that it has to do with is a manifestation of the presence of God. So if you go to the very end of the book of Exodus, in Exodus 40, it says that after the Israelites kind of gathered all the materials for the tabernacle, they built the tabernacle, brought it together. The last thing that happens is this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. The presence of God came and was manifested in the midst of the people. And it was so great that Moses wasn't even able to go into the tent because the glory was so awesome. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. You could literally translate that, lived in a tent among us, because that's what the Greek word means. And it's playing off of that image of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the manifestation of the presence of God among the people. Jesus manifests the presence of the Father. And that's what it's talking about here with the radiance of the glory. But it says also He is the exact representation of His nature. Now this, this word in Greek was used in the ancient world initially to refer to like a stamp or a seal. So if they were making coins, the, the press that made that imprint on the coin, this is a, a word that could describe that. Or if pers a person was using a seal to take wax and then to make an imprint on an official document, that's, that word could be used of that. It also eventually came to be used of the imprint itself, of the image created. It was a distinguishing mark of something where you could see an identity by the imprint that was there. But I like to think of this in relational terms. Uh, if, if the projector had been working this morning, I was going to flash a picture up on the screen of me standing beside my son. And you would see the nose and the fly-by-night ears and <laughs> the hair thing. And it's very, very obvious that the image of the Father is stamped on the face of the Son. In fact, if you saw him and you, and you knew me, you would immediately go, that's got to be George's son. 
And what this is suggesting here in the passage is that you have a direct relationship between the Father and the Son that is clear. The Son is is manifesting the nature of the Father. And it speaks of the closeness to the Father. Seeing Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, do you see how great Jesus is? There's no one else like that. When Hebrews says, for to which of the angels did he ever say? He's basically saying, God is the Father has never said this to anybody else, even angelic beings. So he is the Father's clear message. He's the paramount power. He's the, the signal, that glory that signals the presence of God. He's the snapshot where you see what God is really like. But then finally, he is the gracious Lord of all. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Then when he says that he, he sat down, this is an allusion to Psalm 110.1, which is quoted in verse 13, if you'll notice. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the most alluded to and quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it occurs everywhere because the early Christians understood this to be a passage which spoke specifically to Jesus being not only raised from the dead, but exalted to the right hand of the Father to take the preeminent throne and power over the universe as the enthroned Lord. And I want to suggest this morning that this hits right at the very center of the gospel. And as we kind of move toward wrapping up here, I want you to think with me about the implications of what Hebrews is saying here, that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. This confession that Jesus is the true Lord of the world is really summing up, in one sense, what we mean by the gospel, which is a proclamation that the true king of the world has come and accomplished many significant things in the world. The gospel, the big picture of the good news, is the whole story of Jesus. If you think about what Jesus himself said about the gospel And that word gospel is used 22 times in the gospels, the books of the New Testament, dealing with the story of Jesus. Then it it points to this establishment of a different kind of kingdom. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. In Acts 2.36, we read the punchline of the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and the Messiah. Acts 5.42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is 
the Messiah. And that word Messiah means the King, the Anointed One. Now, we need to make sure that we fully proclaim the gospel, as Paul says in Romans 15, 19. And that's the whole story of Jesus. We, at times, can understandably focus on a vitally important aspect of the gospel that Christ died for our sins and we can spend eternity with Him. And that's right there at the heart of things. But it's in the bigger picture of Jesus being Lord. It's the confession that Christ is the real Lord of the world. This good news that He has broken the back of sin and death is an aspect of His Lordship. The great political powers of the world are passing off the scene. And our secular friends are also passing off the scene and they desperately need the good news. They may not seem like it, but you'd be surprised. And as we think about this dynamic of Jesus being Lord and that being really, really great news, I want you to think about the fact that that calls us to live and confess the gospel with a posture of laying everything at Jesus' feet. Even our disillusionment and the difficulties and the challenges that we're facing. The powers and the pandemics and the political unrest that we experience at this moment in history will all end up at the feet of Jesus. Every cultural worldview that cuts against the gospel, every powerful, influential person that you know of will all end up at the feet of Jesus. Putin, Trudeau, Biden, Xi Jinping, Musk, Will Smith, Dwayne Johnson, you know the big ones. Right? <laughs> but my point is, all the famous people who seem to be immortal in our moment are not. Every knee will bow. And every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all the little powers of our own hearts, my heart, must be brought to the feet of Jesus as well. That's Christian discipleship. And the good news is that our sins of the heart and our intellectual pride and our lust and our racism and our self-centeredness and our self-preservation and our divisiveness are all going to be broken because Jesus will not allow them to devastate us forever. And folks, that is reason to hope. That is really great news. Jesus Christ is not only Lord of all, He is a gracious Lord of all. Do you see how great Jesus is? 
I love the passage in Luke 24 where after the resurrection, Jesus is walking along with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus actually comes up and says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on? But as they come to the table with him and the bread is broken, their eyes are opened. And my prayer is, as we kind of walk through Hebrews over the next few weeks, it will be a breaking of the bread in a sense that will open our eyes to Jesus.